Okay. Well, if you want to have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to take a really good look uh, at this passage that we had read to us earlier. We're coming to the end of a series working through this letter to the Philippians. Uh, And I hope you found it as challenging as I have. This passage is no exception. There's a huge amount of challenge here for us. So let's come to the Lord now and ask for his help. Father, we do thank you for your, your living word. We thank you that it speaks a relevant word to us. Words written maybe 2,000 years ago into a context in another part of the world. And yet, Lord, words that are vital, words that are, that are full of uh, powerful truth for us to live by. Lord, we pray that you would, through your word this morning, correct our thinking, rebuke us for where we've gone astray and bring us back onto a right path. Father, bless us this morning and give us soft and receptive hearts that we'd be willing to change by the power of your spirit that we'd be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask this in your name. Amen. You know, church is an absolutely wonderful thing. I hope that you are a massive fan of church. When we get it right, there is nothing quite like the local church. Now, I was struck by this thought on, on Friday afternoon, uh, just this Friday. Tiago sent a message uh, to a number of us on, on WhatsApp uh, telling us that he'd gone to a, a street party locally and it seemed like the street party was just a, a collection of households who had come out and brought the chairs from their house and sat in little groups and were talking to each other. And so Tiago wanted to know, being a Brazilian, if this was a cultural thing that he just misunderstood. Because he'd assumed that a gathering like that would be an opportunity uh, to get to know local people, to build community. And, you know, and sometimes it is, even in our country, we're not always that, you know, like that. But I couldn't help but contrast this with my experience of the Jubilee cream tea that we had in here just that same day in the morning. I met so many new people at that cream tea. It was absolutely wonderful. I went round all 11 of the tables we had set out and I chatted with with just about everybody there. That's the kind of community that churches ought to be, isn't it? It's a very rare thing in our world. You know, we're a world where, what, five or six years ago, the government appointed a minister for loneliness. I mean, we have a serious problem, don't we, with community. When Paul said to the Galatians, listen, listen to this about the churches. Listen, listen to what he says to the church in Galatia. This is about church, what church is like. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. That was dynamite when he said that into the culture he said it into. He was speaking about something profound. That the church is a place where we are to actually tear down all the social, cultural and ethnic barriers between us. There might be an obstacle between us. Because, he says, we're all one in Christ. That's huge. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all the same. It doesn't just remove all distinction. God loves and God is the author of diversity. He's made us to be different. 
We have different roles, even within the church and outside of the church, that we are to fit into. But what it does mean is that in Christ, we have this fundamental equality and unity together. Think about the way that the Bible talks about the church. We're brothers and sisters. I mean, you can't get a more equalizing expression, can you? Brothers and sisters in the same family, family members together. Each of us is equally a recipient of God's grace. No one of us is more united to Christ than anyone else. No one of us is less in need of the grace of God than anyone else. We've got this wonderful equality within the church. And so each of us, as children of God, have an equal claim on the inheritance that is kept for us in heaven, belonging to all of God's children. Incredible unity and equality in church, isn't it? And because of that, because of that fundamental, foundational truth, we ought to be a starkly different kind of community, in contrast even with the best of what the world has to offer. Yeah? The telltale trait of a Christian is what? It's love. That's the telltale trait of a Christian. More specifically, the love that we have for fellow Christians. Look around this room. That love should distinguish us from everyone else in the world. Jesus himself said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you. I mean, think about that. That's the standard. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. We need to think about that, don't we? Think about those words. And you actually see that kind of heart, that kind of attitude from the Apostle Paul, right from the start of his letter to the Philippians. Do you remember? Chapter 1, he says this. It's incredible. You have to flick back to it if you like. This is how he thinks about them. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, he says in chapter 1, verse 3. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. He pictures their faces, wells up with joy. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now, we have this, this incredible unity together. We're bonded together in a common cause. Verse 8, he says this. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's a way to talk about people, isn't it? I mean, it betrays an incredible love, doesn't it? A church that's really dear to Paul's heart. And so it must have given him considerable heartache when he heard what was going on between these two ladies we just read about. Iodia and Syntyche. And, and the truth is that even in the best of churches, differences can come in between us and they can wreak havoc. They can ruin a good thing. They can shatter our unity and they can render us as a church useless in the commission that we have, that we've been told to do. They ruin our testimony. And in these first nine verses of chapter four here, Paul gives the church some important instructions about what they must do if they want to keep a good thing good. How do you keep it good? 
Have a look at it with me. So verses 2 to 3, we've got the first one there. They need to, in verses 2 to 3, what they need is right relationships. Right relationships in the church. So Paul says, verse 2, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche to agree with one another in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Now I wonder, how would you feel if for 2,000 years, in church circles at least, this is what your name was synonymous with? (laughs) You don't see many Christians calling their kids Euodia or Syntyche, do you? I'm sure that we've all heard the play on words, haven't we, of these two ladies, ladies, odious and soon touchy, yeah? That's their characters. Uh, Of course, you might not mind that you, you know, this was recorded about you if the result was a powerful wake-up call to the church throughout history to sort problems out when they fall out with each other. You might not one, you know, might not be, might not be a problem if that was your, your legacy. But can you picture the church in Philippi as this letter is read out? Imagine, they're all sat together and this letter is being read out, maybe in a home or something like that, with everybody gathered. How these ladies must have squirmed as they're told to consider others more important than themselves in chapter 2. And then how the example of Jesus Christ himself w- was held up to be imitated. I mean, look, look how Jesus does it, giving himself for others. Humility. Don't you think they squirmed in their seats? I imagine up to that point, they've been trying to, up to this is the point in chapter 4 here, they've been trying to avoid any eye contact with anyone in the room. And then Paul singles them out. Now, of course, this takes a lot of pastoral wisdom on Paul's part, doesn't it? To single someone out in front of the church. But you can see just how dear these sisters are to him in the way that he writes about them. So he cannot leave this wound to fester. It's love that dictates that he calls them out on this one for the sake of the church, to keep a good thing good. Well, I want you to notice a few really helpful things here in these, just these couple of verses. Three things. First, these ladies involved in this issue are clearly genuine Christians. They're genuine believers. Do you see that? Paul calls them actually fellow workers, fellow workers with him in his work of mission. Ladies who have laboured at his side, he says, in the cause of the gospel. These are good women. And what's more, look at verse 3. It says, with all confidence, their names are written in the book of life, along with these other people. They're written indelibly in the record of those who truly belong to Christ. That's what he's saying. They are genuine believers. And you know, with all the best will in the world, this is going to happen. Christians are going to clash. Real Christians are going to clash. Those sinful, prideful patterns that remain in our heart, even after, as we saw in, in, verse one, in chapter 1, even after God's begun that good work in us, still there are these remnants of things that they can get the better of us. Now, it might be over differences of doctrine or, or practice, really imp- important things. 
But more likely, usually, actually, it'll be about less important things that we really cl clash. Differences of opinion, preferences that we have, the way that we do things, the way we don't do things, the style of our services, the decor of our building. We can get really invested in these things. But if you are a genuine disciple of Christ, then you cannot allow these things to come between you and a brother or a sister who is in Christ also. We need to hear that. And it's no good just ignoring the issue when it happens. Don't just sweep it under the carpet. That would actually be like ignoring a wound in your body, wouldn't it? There's plenty of horror stories, if you look on the internet, about people who have ignored a wound. You know, they get a cut or a splinter or something like that, and it gets infected and it gets sore. And if it's left too long, it starts to poison the blood, and then sepsis sets in, uh, and you get these stories of people who have had bits cut off their bodies because they left it too long. No wounds need washing out and treating. And the same is true when we wound each other. Healing cannot take place by just ignoring the issue, wrapping it up and pretending it isn't there. Sometimes we will need, with God's help, to go to war against our pride, to sort ourselves out, to hold out an olive branch to a brother or a sister that we've fallen out with. Let me encourage you and I to be the first ones to take the step when it needs to happen. That is Christ-like, to be the initiator in making peace. Isn't that exactly what Christ does? We must mark well the words of the Apostle John. Listen, he doesn't pull any punches here. He says this in 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. If anyone does not love his brother or his sister whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God also must love his brother. Well, second of all then, in these verses, notice how Paul appeals to other church members to help them be reconciled. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, didn't he? For they, why are they blessed? How are they blessed? They will be called sons of God. Sons of God, if you're a peacemaker. Now, you probably know this. The idea behind being the son of someone in, he, in the Hebrew mind is that you're exhibiting their character, their essence. You've got a family resemblance, is what, it's, what Jesus is saying. You know, We would say you're a chip off the old block. When you're a peacemaker, you're a chip off the old block as a son of God. And, and, and when you think about it, actually, one of the themes that unites the whole story of the Bible is God making peace between himself and a rebellious mankind. The cross, the centerpiece of God's saving plan for the world, is all about making peace. Jesus gives his life to reconcile sinners with a holy God. Making peace is an essential part of God's character. And when we are peacemakers, we're like him. 
Are you a peacemaker? One author puts it this way. It's a great question. Are we known for pouring oil on troubled waters or for tipping petrol on the flames? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, how do we do this? How, how do you operate as a peacemaker in a situation that's gone wrong? Well, we help people, first of all, not to get a warped view of the person that's offended them. Yeah, That's really helpful in peacemaking, isn't it? Refusing to take a side and to sort of reinforce where things have gone wrong. Perhaps we then point out some of the good things about the person and remind them about some positive things. We remind them about the forgiveness and the grace that we ourselves have received from God. I remember being really struck by this one time a number of years ago. I was serving with, with another elder in a church I was, I was pastoring at the time. Uh, and this chap, I mean, he was, he was clearly really, uh, really agitated. Uh, that, that he was dealing with a repeat offender. And he was getting really fed up with them keeping coming back and he just never listened never did what he should be doing and it struck me and as we talked together it really helps doesn't it to remember that we do the same to God doesn't it how many times do we come to God with the same offense and yet his response is grace the grace that he shows to us or to fuel the grace that we show to others. In actual fact, Jesus is quite strong on this, isn't he? A mark that we've actually understood the gospel. That we've understood actually how huge our sin is. That we've understood actually how massive God's forgiveness is for us. A mark of the fact that we've actually grasped the gospel is that we can forgive others. We can extend that same grace to others. Oh, it's not easy, but it's a mark that we've actually understood it ourselves. Well, a third thing in these verses that I think is very interesting is that we actually don't know what the issue was here between Yodia and Syntyche. We just don't know. And I think that's intentional, don't you? The point here is not who is right and who is wrong. The important thing is the relationship. That's what Paul's driving at. Sometimes there really isn't a right side and a, and a wrong side in a disagreement or a quarrel. Euodia and Syntyche might never reach an agreement about the issue, whatever that might have been, but they need, says Paul, to agree with each other in the Lord. You've got to get there, ladies. Agree with each other in the Lord. You've got to learn how to disagree without becoming disagreeable with each other. You've got to learn to love despite differences of opinion or differences of point of view. And you must do it for the sake of unity together in Christ. You're in the same body. You can't be at odds with each other. This unity is important, and, and you get this as a theme through these verses, don't you? This idea of team. We're a team. We're working in a team. They used to be fellow workers. We used to do gospel work together. How can that happen? How can we pull together in the cause of the gospel if we're not united? If we want to keep this good thing good, we must maintain 
we must fight for, actually, right relationships within the church. Don't let them fester. Deal with wounds. The second thing we need in verses 4 to 7 is right reactions. So right relationships, right reactions. Have a look at verses 4 to 7. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And there's about six sermons worth of material there. But we're going to just try and get the gist of this. And it starts with, again, that call to rejoice, isn't it? If rejoicing is a repeated theme in this letter, then I take it we need to get to grips with it. We've got to get this right, haven't we? Rejoicing, being a rejoicing people. It's a fundamental theological principle. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, he says, Be joyful always. Pray continually. These all sound impossible, don't they? (laughs) Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Wow. And actually, when you think about it, in both the the passage that we're looking at this morning and those verses from 1 Thessalonians, we're told the same thing. We must learn to rejoice in every circumstance of life got to learn to rejoice in it and we do this says Paul by having thankful hearts notice though we are to thank God in not necessarily always for all circumstances so even if you can't thank God for the circumstance you can certainly find things to thank him for in them it seems to me that clearly if we know how to, if we need to know how to survive, and not just to survive, but to, to be rejoicing, even in difficult circumstances, it must mean we're not immune to them. It means that for the Christian, life is going to happen. Life's going to have its ups and downs. So how do we do this? How do we rejoice? How do we manage to be anxious for nothing? I mean, how many times have you lain on your bed anxious about things? How do we manage to not do that? Well, see, now, this is not just an instruction about positive thinking, right? It's not just a grit your teeth and get on with it sort of a thing. Well, have you ever watched the musical The, the King and I? I always think of this with, the, with this sort of idea. Do you know the musical The King and I? It, start, it starts, the, you know, the... Rex Hamilton, whatever, whatever version it is, whatever. What's his name? I can't remember who the chap is, plays the king. Anyway, I don't know the names of the people. That's not important. But it starts, it opens with this scene, doesn't it, of them arriving in Siam. And you've got this mother and son arriving there, walking down the docks, and they're terrified. Everything around them is frightening. And so they break out into a song. Okay. Now, this is not what we do. This is not what it is. We've got this whistling. You know, whenever I feel it, afraid... I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune. (coughs) That's not what this is saying, is it? That's not what we're being told to do here. Now, we've looked at this in previous weeks where we've observed that the Christian disciple, get this, the Christian disciple 
is in the unique position of being able to trust that God will most certainly bring good out of even the worst things that might happen to us. That's unique, isn't it? And we know this because of two things. One, he is absolutely sovereign. He's the ruler. The Bible tells us that God works out everything in conformity with his will. Get that. How does he want the world to be when it conforms and it shapes itself to his design? He is sovereign. This is the God who, right from the first pages of the Bible, speaks, and it is so. The psalmist writes that the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. That's our God. Remember, that's the first thing you need to remember. He's absolutely sovereign. And two, he's a loving father who is involved in all the details of your and my life. He's not absent. He's not distant somewhere at the back of the universe. Feel the confidence then in the words that Paul writes to the church in Rome. We know, says Paul, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those two things... God's sovereign power and his way of always working for our good create a potent truth, don't they? A truth that can sustain us all through life if we can just grab onto them. We can be free from all anxiety, verse 6. That's an incredible statement. We can bring every request to God. We can pray and petition him with full confidence that he's listening and loving and caring. And we can do so with the confidence also that, as, as Paul says here, the Lord is near. He's near, he's not distant. So brothers and sisters, hold on to those truths. They're a lifeline for us, aren't they? And from that position of security, can you feel the security? From that position of security... Now we can react rightly to our circumstances. And we can also react rightly to people when we've got this right in our hearts. Verse 5 tells us, have a look. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Now gentleness is a, is a, is a rich word. It means something like you know, fairness and reasonableness. It, this is a person who is not reactionary. When you interact with them, the response is reasonable and even and fair and gentle. How many of us qualify on this one? Wow. That's how we should react towards everyone. Even the most awkward people that we encounter. Even the person that cuts you up in the traffic. Yeah? It's really hard to overcome our instincts, isn't it? When we're, when we're upset about something really hard. I mean, don't you just want to tell them to get lost? Yeah, they've been in your face. Or, or don't you just want to reply with cutting sarcasm? Maybe just slightly too low for them to hear. Yeah. But gentleness will not allow it. Gentleness keeps the reins held tightly on our, 
on our temper and on our tongue. Gentleness. And gentleness, reasonableness, also doesn't take the attitude of the sort of more than my job's worth kind of person. Have you ever met one of those people? I don't know if that's a southern thing or not. We had, uh, we had an electrician uh, who came to look at the, the meter. He came just to read the meter, really, in a previous church because we were trying to sort our bills out, church office. And uh, he turned up at our offices, and he didn't have the right ladder, okay? So he didn't have the, what he called the regulation ladder with him. Again, now you have to bear in mind, the electricity meter was probably about there, okay? We offered him a chair. Okay, we offered him our step ladder. He said, no, 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 I need to come back because I need to have a colleague with me. Okay, I'm not joking, to, to hold the ladder. And it needs to be a regulation ladder, right? I'm not going up there. It, and he literally told us, mate, it's more than my job's worth, right? Not happening to read the meter. Gentleness is not like that. Gentleness is reasonable. That's the point here. The author, Ian uh, Kofi, describes one aspect of gentleness as a willingness to bend the rules out of love for the individual. That's the concept behind it. Not to be rigid and unyielding. It's like the policeman that stops you. You know, when you're doing 35 in the 30 limit, he stops you, he's got your bank to rights, and he sees that you're sorry, and he says, well... It's just a caution then. You know, we'll let you. It, it's that instead of the one that's saying, no, 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 five miles over, that's it, bang, here's your ticket. Okay, it's, it's the bendingness, it's the reasonableness out of love. And that kind of gentleness promotes unity. It, it should govern the way we react to people. Just as prayer and thanksgiving and joy should govern the way that we react to our circumstances. The result of reacting in, in these kinds of ways, if these things are governing us, you can see it in verse 7, take a look. It's wonderful. Paul says, you know, when you're doing this, as you do this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't you want that? I want that. The word guard in verse 7 is a military term, you know. Soldiers who stand guard over a city to protect it from attack. That's the idea. The peace of God then is this, is this active peace. It's an active defense. It's on guard, shielding the inmost part of the believer. Don't you want that peace? This is what happens when you take everything to the Lord in prayer, isn't it? It brings a peace that cannot be understood, says Paul. I mean, that, that in itself is a really... Strange expression, isn't it? A peace that's beyond understanding. It seems to indicate a kind of peace that, for all intents and purposes, as far as the onlooker can see, well, it just shouldn't be possible. How can they be there like that? We have to assume it's all just a, just a veneer, that they're actually like the swan with the paddling legs under the water. It leaves the world scratching their heads, saying, how on earth can he or she be at peace? All of that going on in their life. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Well, a third thing they need, just finally, in those last couple of words. We've had right relationships, right reactions. The third thing is right thinking. Right thinking. 
Just take a look at verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 8 there, I'm sure we all, you know, probably many of us can quote that verse. It's a well-known verse, isn't it? It spells out the thinking pattern for a man or a woman who desires to be holy. That's really what it is, isn't it? To be Christ-like. And it begs us to ask the question, what are you filling your mind with, doesn't it? Yeah? What do you dwell on in your mind? What is, as a friend of mine used to say, what is screensaver mode for you? Although I'm not even sure we have screensavers anymore, do we? You know, remember those things that used to bounce around the screen, you know, when not at work? Uh, apparently, men are more prone to this than women. Men ha definitely have a screensaver mode where we can literally think about nothing, whereas, whereas women are generally thinking about stuff all the time. But what fills your thoughts in screensaver mode? What is it? Probably... Most of what we watch on the telly would fall far short of the standard in this verse, wouldn't it? Yeah? I mean, that's fairly obvious. It's the way of the world. But I don't think that this verse is primarily supposed to be some kind of a cosh to beat us up over the kind of box sets that we enjoy. Not that it doesn't do that, by the way. It, it does, doesn't it? But rather than a rebuke, please look at what's going on here. This verse is actually an invitation. Did you notice that? Rather than telling us off, like a policeman, for the things that we think about, that we shouldn't be thinking about, it's inviting us, actually, to go find things that are, in fact, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Go find them and then dwell on those, says the apostle. It's been truly observed. Listen, for the Christian, we are not what we think we are. We see that truth all the time, don't we, in the New Testament. But what we think we are. It's our thinking that is so often the driving influence on our feeling and on our behavior. That's why we must meditate on the word of God, isn't it? And I, for one, cannot think of anything that fits the bill more for verse 8 than Jesus Christ himself. I mean, it's basically his resume again, isn't it? How often are your thoughts, then, consumed with him? The easy application here, as usual, is to remind us all about the importance of having a daily devotion. I hope you're doing that. Taking time to read God's word, to dwell on things like this. I want to assume that most of you are doing that. But can I suggest that whenever you read your Bible, stop after you've read it. Stop for a moment. Spend some time thinking about what you've just learned about the triune God that it's speaking about. What have you just seen? And what did you just read that tells you about God that is, that is true and noble and right and lovely and admirable and excellent? or praiseworthy, and then unashamedly worship him for it. Pray that that same character will be developed in you.
How do we keep a good thing good? How do we protect ourselves, both as individuals and as a church, from division, from distraction, from all those things that are the enemy of the gospel and that are going to make us ineffective for the cause of Christ? How do we do it? Well, we, f- we do it by fighting to be in right relationship with each other. We've got to fight for that. We do it by letting our reactions be governed by gentleness. By having hearts full of joy and prayerful thanksgiving. And by filling our minds, meditating daily on all that is Christ-like that we see around us. And this, brothers and sisters, is how we strive to keep a good thing good. To be a church that the world can look on at in envy and think, I wish we had what they have. May God grant us the grace to obey his word and may the peace of God be with us.